everybody. Welcome to episode 155 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this episode is Back to Superboy with episodes 5 and 6 of season 1, Countdown to Nowhere and Bringing Down the House. The uh, interesting note about Countdown to Nowhere is that when you actually look at it, it is probably better suited to be the series premiere instead of episode 5, but we will get to more of that later. For right now, I have feedback to address. Feedback here is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode 144. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Wow, episode 144. That's gross. Sorry, you know I enjoy puns. It's uh, good to know that many of the episodes of the Galactic Guardians will have the longer 22-minute stories. As you said, this length gives the stories more time to develop and more space to tell the story. Seeds of Doom gives us Darkseid once again with his familiar plan to take over and destroy the Earth as well as make Wonder Woman his bride. In some ways, these are plans worthy of a villain from a much earlier time, like, say, Ming the Merciless from Flash Gordon. But this is a perfectly fine interpretation of Darkseid nonetheless. You mentioned that you tend to associate Cyborg with Titans rather than the Justice League, and this was certainly true back in 1985, but I wonder if younger fans, especially nowadays, associate him more with the Justice League particularly those who have started reading comics during the New 52, or those who've only seen the DC movies. Oddly, I found the interplay between Cyborg and Firestorm here to be slightly reminiscent of the later friendship between Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. The Ghost Ship seems like a story that might have been better if it had been a 22-minute story, with better development, and the Bizarro Superpowers team might have been better if it had simply been forgotten altogether. I prefer the misunderstood monster version of Bizarro rather than the silly, backward Superman version. And a bizarre version of Mixia Spitalik is like fingernails across a blackboard to me. I'm looking forward to your coverage of this season. Thanks. Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, as always, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. As uh, far as uh, Dave's uh, gross pun, for those of you who do not know, a gross of something is 144 items. So I, I have now put out a gross of regular episodes of the Man of Screen podcast. I mean, if you want to count total episodes, the, the 30 or 31 or 32 extras that I've done, two specials and a couple of Man of Screen at the movies, which was a noble, Man of Screen at the movies was a noble effort, but one that I kind of gave up on right away as I, uh, you know, I wanted to focus more on the main story. And if I have anything to really say about some of those movies, I'll talk about it on extra. But anyway, uh, moving on, uh, Yes, I did enjoy the fact that the Galactic Guardians, with some exceptions, uh, stuck to the 22-minute format. And uh, yeah, this was a fine interpretation of Darkseid, especially since with Galactic Guardians, we're getting more of an uh, apocalyptian uh, Darkseid. You know, even though the uh, Legendary Superpowers show tended to say that Darkseid, Decide, and Kalabak were all from Apocalypse, the Apocalypse that was displayed in the episode didn't really appear to be the same type of thing as the Apocalypse in the comics, where... That's on the cartoon. It seems like an ice planet where we all know of Apocalypse as the uh, fire pit laden hellscape that it is in the comics, and which it was in the Galactic Guardians. So it was definitely a much more accurate interpretation of dark of dark side. And uh, yes, uh, people my age, I am almost forty, probably are more likely to associate Cyborg with the Titans. But I do have to get over the fact that it has been nine years since uh, Cyborg was, I guess you want to say, promoted to the Justice League. You know, all of the original Titans characters are kind of in strange kind of limbo at the moment anyway. But yeah, Cyborg, especially in the modern world with all the computer technology, 
does serve a good purpose in uh, the Justice League. I just wish his uh, promotion had not been done at the expense of the Martian Manhunter, who has always been one of my favorite Justice Leaguers. And uh, Dave mentioned that he found the interplay between Cyborg and Firestorm to be re- slightly reminiscent of the later friendship between Be- Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. It's, yeah, I can kind of see that. You know, it makes sense that as two of the younger members of the Super Friends or Justice League, whatever you want to call them, you know, they're not quite junior team members like uh, the Wonder Twins, but they're not exactly senior members like Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman and all that. So they do have a unique bond in the show. And uh, I, I didn't think of Blue Beetle and Booster Gold, but that's a pretty apt comparison. So uh, good job there, Dave. And uh, yes, the ghost ship probably should would have been better at a 22-minute story. It might have been better if I actually really remembered the ghost ship, but... Oh, is that the one where they were chasing the princess around in the ship? No, I think 11 minutes of that was just fine. And uh, yeah, I didn't really care for that Bizarro episode either. I prefer the uh, misunderstood monster version of Bizarro as well. So that's pretty much all I've got on Dave's letter. Thank you, Dave, for writing in. Next letter is from Jack Bone. Jack's subject is Rise of the Galactic Guardians. Jack writes, I'd only watched the previous Superpower show because I found the DVD in a $3 bin. Here I am watching this season with no special discount. You have quite literally sold me on the show. The Seeds of Doom is a great beginning. The uh, devices to open up the fire pits and turn Earth into another apocalypse is a serious threat. And it was played up in a bigger way than it was than it was used later in Superman the Animated Series in a longer story arc. Has this idea ever shown up in the comics? I can't say much about art style either, but the Calabac character looks to be drawn as broader and also more hunched over than last year when, like most of the superheroes, he seemed traced over a standard body model. The ghost ship is a pretty standard variation of the space arc story, but I guess any story can be someone's first exposure to its ideas, so pretty standard is not bad. I think I like the Bizarro Superpowers theme a lot more than you did. There's no arguing between different senses of humor, the Goofy, the Goofabiz 9S dis, Disputandum, but a Bizarro makes this pity like being Kiltic System is just brilliant. Had no comics writer thought of that before? Looking forward to the rest of the episode, especially Batman's return to Crime Alley. This was one of the rare episodes I saw back then, and I was impressed by it. Jack. So, uh, Jack picked up Superpowers, Joe DVD in a $3 bin, and uh, he paid full price, I guess, for the DVDs of uh, the Galactic Guardian season. So, I've sold him on the show. As a disclaimer, the Man of Screen podcast is not responsible for any uh, spending decisions you make because you've been listening to my show. So, <laughs> I'm just going to put that right out there. If you spend money on this stuff, it's not my fault. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think the Seeds of Doom was a, was a great beginning too. And uh, you know, I didn't even think of the Superman the Animated Series episode uh, fire pit thing when I watched this episode. They did seem to kind of down, you know, only use that in the first act of that story. And they kind of went on to other things later. But yeah, that was a very good uh, hook for the story. You're going to see that, I mean, you've seen that Darkseid and Kalabak and Desaad were a much bigger threat in the Galactic Guardians than they were as opposed to the Legendary Superpowers show. And uh, Jack mentions that the Kalabak was uh, drawn as broader and also more hunched over than last year. Well, I think the Super Friends, the original eight seasons, you know, they went with very uh, specific and simplistic designs where the designs of the characters in the Galactic Guardians is uh, designed by uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. And some of the character, a lot of the characters were much more defined than they were in previous seasons. They all had more of a unique look. So the hunched over Kalabak and the broader and hunched over Kalabak is much more in line with uh, the comics. 
nothing really to add on the ghost ship. And uh, the, uh, to me, you know, again, like Jack says, there's no arguing sense of humors. But the combination of Bizarro, Mixias Pitalik, the combination of Bizarro and Mixias Pitalik in one episode is uh, just too much. <laughs> Let's just say that. Although it was clever about Bizarro and Mixias Pitalik being guilty of season. And I don't know if any comics writer has thought of that before. And uh, to answer Jack's question up above regarding the fire pits, I'm not entirely sure if uh, that kind of plot line has appeared in the comics, at least at this time. So I really don't have any answers to those questions, but thank you, Jack, for writing in. You can write in, too, like Jack and Dave did, manascreen at gmail.com. For now, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, then I'm going to come back with The Adventures of Superboy. Season 1, Episode 5, Countdown to Nowhere. Hang around, folks. Hey, everybody. Magnus here. In 1992, seven men disrupted the comic book industry. And it was awesome. It's hard to find a comic book publisher that launched with more anticipation, excitement, and hype than Image Comics did. Now me, I love Image Comics. So much, in fact, that beginning in March of 2020, I'm embarking upon a brand new epic mega-series. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. I'm taking a fond look back at a handful of early Image titles. What was good? What was bad? What were some missed opportunities? Well. Things couldn't have been too horrible because those comics sold millions and millions of copies. So join in on the fun with me and take a fond look back at the comics of yesteryear. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. A Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega series beginning in March of 2020. Only at twotruefreaks.com. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start this episode off with Countdown to Nowhere. Original broadcast date was November 5th, 1988, and this episode was directed by Colin Chilvers, who uh, worked on the Superman films, uh, at least one through three, in the uh, special effects department. It's a week ago as of this recording on February 17th. If you find the WGBS TV Live from the Superman homepage, the February 11th episode is a great interview. Uh, where Steve Eunice and Mike Bailey talked to uh, Colin Shivers about uh, working on the Superman movies and, uh, to a lesser extent, Superboy. So, this episode was written by Fred Friedberger, guest cast, Douglas Barr as Roscoe Williams, Fred Broderson as Detective Paul Darby, Fred Broderson as the detective, Paul Darby as the radio operator, Jay Glick as the security chief, Duriel Harris as Theodore, and Noah Meeks as Miller. And our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Lana is falling in with some criminals disguised as football jocks who plan to steal a laser so they can destroy the space shuttle during launch. Lana has organized a protest outside the lab where the test weapon is being kept. The crooks, who fool Lana into thinking they're actually students, trick her into becoming their hostage. Lana thinks they're going to speed inside and plant a picket sign right on the laser weapon, but... When the guard outside won't let them in, they pull guns and threaten to kill her, so the guard steps aside. 
The guard, who knows Lana and is somewhat friendly in a stern way, is beaten and left for dead inside the lab with another security guy. The crooks take the weapon to their van after gassing the lab. TJ informs Clark that Lana is missing, and when he x-rays the lab, he sees the gas and, subsequ- and subsequently rescues the two men. When Clark and TJ question the recovering guard at police headquarters, It was four of them. They, they took the laser gun. Were they students? I figured they were, uh, with the uniforms and all. But now that you mention it, uh, they did look a little old. What are we going to do about Lana? We're going to find her. That's what we're going to do. How do you feel, Mr. Miller? Terrible about the girl. She put up a hell of a fight. Did they hurt her? Yeah, one of them belted her pretty good. Did they say anything about where they were headed? I think, Mr. Miller, they must have said something. Uh, Look, kid, get off my back. I'm grateful you saved my life, but... My head's killing me. Sorry, Mr. Miller, but Lana's life could depend on you remembering. Mr. Miller, come on, think about it. What did they say? Uh, yeah, the, the first guy, he said, um, um, they had 90 minutes to get someplace, like a, like the main event, or they would blow the whole thing. Live coverage at Cape Canaveral tips Clark off that the crooks must plan to attack the shuttle. It's the middle of the week. There's no football games. There's no baseball games. Yeah, yeah. I looked up uh, boxing and wrestling. There's nothing. Well, what minute are they talking about? D minus 20 minutes to shuttle launch. Coming up on auto sequence start. The main event, Kennedy Space Center. Look, go after the shuttle. Clark gives an excuse, heads off to change Superboy, and flies to Cape Canaveral. Meanwhile, a helicopter approaches the base. The thieves are stopped at. Right on schedule. Just hope that sub we're supposed to meet is on schedule too. We'll be where he's supposed to be. With that arms dealer and our twenty million dollars. <laughs> you were wondering how we'd get away with this? The answer to that question just landed. Every eye in the country is gonna be glued on that shuttle. No civilian will be allowed within five miles of that launch pad. But who's gonna challenge the chopper of a four-star general if it takes off and skims the gulf? <laughs> Theodore, what do you say we test the army's newest weapon, huh? Let's do it. Hold on. Lee criminal fires the weapon at two guards, presumably killing them, and they take off toward the launch pad. After being questioned by the military, Superboy hears Lana screaming and flies off toward the sound. As he approaches the chopper, the goons hit it full throttle but are unable to outrun the flying hero. When Superboy grabs the landing skids, the lead goon tosses Lana out and our hero leaves the helicopter to go catch her. Once she's safely on the ground, Superboy goes after the villains again, and this time they shoot him with the laser weapon. At first, Superboy seems stunned by the attack, but then he simply deflects further bolts with his hands and grabs the chopper, forcing the baddies in for a landing at the base where they originated. The waiting four-star general is awed and salutes Superboy before the hero takes off again. We're shown the shuttle launching as Superboy flies by smiling. Once he comes back to Lana and TJ, it's Clark. Hey, guys. Hey, Clark, look. Lana, she's okay. Clark, you would not believe what happened to me. Oh, sure I will. No, you wouldn't. I mean, you missed the whole thing, Clark. There's this guy, and he flies. No kidding. Yeah. And he's so incredible and amazing and so unreal. (laughs) I'm sure he is. I think you forgot awesome. I did. (laughs) So, it is quite clear when you watch this episode, this is the first appearance of Superboy. Yes, there have been four episodes before this one, but this 
and I saw this on the IMDb trivia as well, this was intended to be the first episode aired. However, it aired as episode five. I don't know why. And I did some poking around on the web, and I really couldn't easily find the reason. I, you know, Part of me wonders if there seemed to be a lot of visual effects in this episode. You know, with Superboy dealing with the helicopter and uh, a lot of flying and stuff like that. I wonder if maybe the effects took longer to complete and they had to uh, stick maybe another block of four episodes in to deliver the show to the syndicated runtime. I mean, I, I don't know. But, yeah, when you if you're watching this show kind of all in a row and all of a sudden you get to this episode where Superboy is clearly making his first appearance, it's clear that Lana and TJ have never seen Superboy before. When they've known him in past episodes, it's uh, glaringly out of sequence. Let's just say that. I mean, with the exception of this one, I mean, like most TV in the 1980s, this show is episodic. You can watch these episodes in any order you want. That being said, it's clear this is his first appearance. So this episode should probably be watched first, and then you can watch or not watch whatever the following episodes in whatever order you want, but... This should have been the first episode. It wasn't. I don't know why. And honestly, 32 years later, I'm not really going to solve the mystery. So let's just move on into the episode, shall we? And this episode starts with a cold open, unlike all of the rest of the episodes, which start off with the opening title sequence. This one gives us a cold open. And Alana is pleading the protest against what she calls the engines of death. I'm not I'm not sure how... Uh, Far Alana's activism will go as we progress through these seasons. I do remember the, in the uh, the episode with the old man at the uh, scrapyard, Back to Oblivion. Lana was pointing out that uh, the old man, Mr. Wagner, had donated a car for, you know, one of those uh, drunk driving or drug or driving while intoxicated displays where you have the beat up car and you. So it is clear that Lana is involved on campus, whether she's doing something like that or staging a protest. So. Lana is uh, civic-minded, let's just say the least. And she's mad at Clark and TJ for not protesting. She makes a comment that apparently her dad marched for civil rights. And she's proud of her father. That doesn't really mesh well with what happened in the uh, Jewel of Tetrakal episode, where they're kind of estranged. But eh, whatever, it is what it is. But the football team is going to help with the protest. Uh, the lead football player, his name is Roscoe. He's uh, hitting on Lana and kind of coming on with coming up with some ideas for her protest, like planting a flag on, on the laser on the inside. Now, the first thing I noticed about these college football players is some of these guys look like they're in their 30s, which, I mean, I know college students tend to be cast older. I mean, hell, look at the ages on the uh, 90210 actors a couple years later than this, but these uh, football players look old, and I kind of like the fact that it does kind of come into play. So at first, I'll, you know, Lana thinks they're just going to, you know, help with a prank as part of the protest, but the running back, I believe that's Theodore, has a gun, and uh, we're going to see uh, where that leads us. I mentioned that all of this was uh, cold open, which they weren't really uh, that big of a deal back in 1988, at least as they are now. It seems like every show has a cold open now, and it seems as though now, especially on network TV, where time is at a premium, the opening sequences, I mean, even badly produced ones like this one, seem to have gone away to get more showtime in as... Uh, more commercial time is added. I mean, I remember there was a time when uh, an hour-long TV show could give you almost 45 minutes. Now you're lucky you get 42. So commercial time has definitely increased over the years. And let's just say that I enjoy having my streaming uh, 
services with no commercials. Much better. So this security guard here, Mr. Miller, is apparently friendly with the students. And uh, these football players have guns and pistol whipped poor Mr. Miller. Knocking him cold. Lana tries to stop one of them by jumping onto his back. But he kind of flings her against the wall, knocking her out Kristen Craig style. And, you know, all this for the football players to steal the machine. For those of you watching at home, if you are, Roscoe is number 74. He's going to keep Lana as a bargaining chip, uh, despite uh, the protests from uh, Theodore. So meanwhile, this protest is going on with no one to the wiser that anything is happening on the inside of the building. Someone finally notices that Mr. Miller has uh, gone from his post. Clark notices the gas, so he checks it out. And uh, here is Clark using his powers without any costumes. So if you're watching this for the first time all in a row, you may not necessarily be aware that he has not appeared as Superboy yet. You would naturally wonder why he's not changing. Well, the reason he's not changing is because he hasn't done his first change yet. But he's about to. But then when he realizes he doesn't see the football players, he uh, decides not to. So Lana, meanwhile, is uh, very feisty with these guys. And uh, I'm not entirely sure she realizes the gravity of her situation yet. So uh, Stacy Heideck right now in this plays a great feisty Lana. And I'm gl- I was glad to see that Mr. Miller, with his uh, brains frazzled, noticed what I did, that these football players looked way old to be ordinary college students. And I love Clark the Reporter on the- in this show. It's been well-developed so far in the first few episodes that he's serious about reporting. And he can give a young Lois Lane a run for his money here because he's not the wishy-washy Clark. He's, I don't know if I want to say he's closer to George Reeves than Christopher Reeve, but Clark has played with a competence here that I really like. It's always hard to buy the Christopher Reeve version of Clark to competent enough to work at the Daily Planet. But anyway, there will continue to be some infighting among uh, the guys here as they want to kill Lana now, but Roscoe wants to keep her, you know, like she's a pet. I kind of feel bad for Miller, though. I mean, I understand that Clark is uh, worried, but he's really putting Miller through the ringer. And, you know... Miller already feels terrible about what happened to Lana. He also probably feels terrible because his head is probably killing him. You know, Clark could use a little understanding. I know he's worried, but like I said, he is pushing Mr. Miller very hard. But Miller does finally remember the 90 minutes that uh, they referred to. The main event will be in 90 minutes. I wonder what the main event is. So now I guess this next room that Clark and TJ are in is the office of the uh, Schuster Herald. And I like that Clark is doing some investigating. He's using the compass there. And he's trying to figure out how far these guys can drive in about 90 minutes. So he's trying to find possible locations for this gang doing whatever it is they could be doing. So now this, for the viewer, this will be the, what happens next will be the first clue that something is kind of off. As uh, Clark gets a call from Ma Kent, who I don't know if this is uh, Salome Jens at this point. I mean, that's who will actually play the role later on when we see her, but... Gerald. Hi, Clark. Oh, hi, Ma. Clark, how is everything at school? Um, everything, everything's fine. We didn't get your weekly call this morning. Is everything all right? Yeah, everything's okay, Ma. Can I call you back later? I don't like the sound of your voice, Clark. Are you in trouble? Not me, Lana. Lana? Clark, are you thinking of becoming Superboy? I'm not sure that I have a choice. I understand. You can't talk now. Just know that your pa and I are sure you'll do the right thing. Thanks, Ma. I miss you guys. Okay, so I can call you tomorrow? Of course. And son, uh-huh. be careful. I will. Goodbye now. Okay, goodbye. I love you. Bye-bye.
She asked if he's thinking of becoming Superboy. He hasn't yet. If you're just watching this for the first time, it's kind of weird for episode five. So the main event the football players are talking about is at the Kennedy Space Center. Apparently, a shuttle is about to get launched. <laughs> so what happens next is pretty funny. Clark can't find the storeroom, and he's about to pull open his shirt, but there's a you know cute co-ed sitting there reading. So he changes off screen, and then he flies off, but she hears him take off. She must hear the uh, the whistling of the wind or the sonic boom, and uh, when she looks, doesn't see anything. So she just kind of continues to sit there looking uh, quite confused. So the action is ramping up here a little bit. The football players are at, are at Kennedy, and the chopper's coming in, Superboy's coming in. Everything is about to converge on the Kennedy Space Center. And at this point, we find out what the uh, football player I keep calling them the football players. They're not really football players. They're either a gang or villains, bad guys, whatever the hell you want to call them. Whatever you want to call them, they're doing this job for $20 million. I'm not sure if it's $20 million each or $20 million split between the three or four of them, but... $20 million is, is the price they, they're getting paid. So so this laser is a huge backpack that looks incredibly heavy, and uh, they just kind of take it and run across the, the runway here with this big laser. I mean, does nobody notice this? And as all this is happening, we get a little bit more of Lana being feisty, and uh, she gets away. And now uh, the army detective Superboy coming in from the west. He's an unidentified flying object coming in from the west, which... Kind of, the dialogue is almost the same as what we'd get in 2006 in Superman Returns, you know, right before the airplane sequence, where he's identified as an unidentified, where the uh, fighter pilot refers to him as an unidentified bogey coming in from the north. I mean, I'm not saying this is what happened in Superman Returns is a nod to this, but it's just kind of standard dialogue that would be the same because it's relaying the same information, direction, and speed, basically. So now Superboy shows up. I'm not here to hurt you, and your weapons can't harm me. Who are you? I'm called Superboy. I fight for truth, justice, and the American way. That's a good way to put uh, people you don't know at ease. I'm here. You can't hurt me. So listen. Yeah. And then he stands in front of the picture of a space shuttle in one of the worst blue screen shots that I've ever blue screened. I mean, this whole who are you sequence and introduction to Superboy seems very uh, contrived and forced, very low budget. It's almost clear that this uh, person Superboy is talking to probably isn't even in the same room as John Hames Newton, and they just kind of edited this together. They never appear on screen together, so it's just not a very well-done sequence at all. So he kind of says, I am Superboy, I fight for truth, justice, and the American way, and off we go. And uh, anytime something has to fly in this episode, whether it's Superboy or it's the helicopter, it looks horrible. Give the show credit, it tries, but the budget is not there to do these effects convincingly. So Superboy grabs the helicopter and Lana seems to recognize that he's there for them. I don't quite know how she knows. It's clear that she's seeing him for the first time, so she doesn't know him. So I don't understand how she can tell he was here for the gang. Because once Lana falls out of the chopper and she's caught, she pretty much confirms that it's the first time. So the shot of uh, Superboy landing uh, wasn't bad. He brought Lana to where TJ was, and this was probably on location with a crane, but the rest of the flying stuff when he's in the air, oh boy, is it bad. And, you know, watching this for, as the fifth episode, it's weird to see all these initial reactions from uh, everybody around him, who it seems as though they've seen him before, you know what I mean? TJ comments that Superboy reminds him of someone. Gee, I wonder who. So, apparently this laser can hurt Superboy a little bit. Just as I was thinking he could use, he could use some heat vision on this thing, he does just that, fires the heat vision. 
I've possibly watched too much Superman-related content in my life. I don't think there's anybody that knows me would disagree with that statement because now I'm, I'm at a point where I'm kind of thinking along. <laughs> oh, he's going to do that next. And sure enough, there he, uh, there he is. Not because I've seen this before, but because I've seen enough that I kind of know Superman's uh, methodology a little bit. So Superboy brings the helicopter in as these generals just kind of watch from the runway with really goofy looks on their faces. You know, he's bringing the helicopter in. They're standing there like, the so. And meanwhile, the guys on the helicopter, they're just up there terrified. So, you know, I like John Hames Newton in this role. He's got the look. It's just, I don't know, just when he speaks, his speech seems a little wooden to me. I mean, it just it doesn't seem natural. I don't know. Maybe he warms up toward the end of the first season. I don't know. I'll have to keep going and uh, see how that goes. So Superboy uh, salutes and uh, flies off and flies away during a shuttle launch. Very obviously stock footage. So now comes our ending as we see Superboy duck behind a bush. And uh, out comes Clark. And uh, we're glad Lana is okay. They're giddy about Superboy. And uh, it's kind of clear that Lana is smitten. Is smitten and that's going to set up whatever happens uh, down the line. Like I mentioned before, I found nothing to indicate why this wasn't the first episode. It was aired fifth. It's a better first episode than the Jewel of Tetrakal was. That being said, this episode is not great. It's very straightforward and bare bones. It's basically a chase. We hit the ground running. We don't get or need an origin. Just a straightforward Superboy adventure. Doesn't try to do too much. Doesn't really do much at all. But it's a better start than Jewel, which feels like you kind of dropped into something that's already in motion. So... Like I said, I just wish I could find something a little more concrete about why this was uh, aired fifth instead of first. Which is funny, is uh, a question I'm going to be asking again in some of the earlier episodes of Lois and Clark, just to uh, warn you ahead of time for that. So, that's all I got on that episode. For now, I'm going to take another break, play another promo. When I come back, episode six, Bringing Down the House. Hang around, folks. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team, operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit. Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the League through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. All right, welcome back, folks. Going to finish things off with Bringing Down the House. Original broadcast date was November 12th, 1988. This was also directed by Colin Silvers, written by Howard Dimsdale and Michael Morris. Guest cast includes Antonio Fabrizio as Charles, Leif Garrett as Judd Faust, or Faust. I believe the episode pronounces it Faust. 
Sabrina Lloyd as Betsy, Dennis Michael as Henry, Ed Montgomery as the umpire, Don Sheldon as Andy, and Tanya Roberts as the college student. And our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Clark and TJ are up in the broadcast booth of a baseball game when Clark spots the, the mascot, whom TJ observes only holds up the action, and is about to get down to some no-good action of his own. Just after Clark notices the mascot switching baseballs, an announcement is made over the loudspeaker. Attention, attention everybody, you are in danger. A bomb will explode in 30 seconds. This is your only warning. Leave this complex immediately. Hey guys, how about us getting out of here also, huh? I'm not letting any weirdo chase me off my job. Besides, they're bluffing. The mascot runs off and we see a shady looking fellow, later to be named Charles, emerge from beneath the costume. He looks around shiftily and hops into his getaway car. Clark is shown listening to the squeaky car driving away before he decides to focus on the baseball the pitcher was given by the mascot before he exited stage left. X-ray vision shows us the announced bomb is inside the baseball and about to be pitched. The ball has a countdown timer inside, and we're shown 15 seconds left before we go to the commercial break. Clark strides onto the field in full Eagles regalia and says the coach wants him to pinch it for the guy in the box. Without question or protest, the guy <laughs> simply walks off and lets Clark take over. TJ recognizes Clark, who then swats the ball out of the park, where it explodes in the sky. Next, we're introduced to Judd Faust. Hey, there's Judd! Mr. Faust, Clark Kent, Schuster Harold, TJ White. How are you? Can I get one more shot there? Uh, one's my quarter for the day. The sound crew? And of course, uh, Marilyn. Hi. Betsy? Hi. Susan? Mm hmm. And Lana? I really love your music. Thank you. Judd's in town to get his honorary master's degree in music. And he's graciously agreed to do a concert for us, student body. That's the least I could do for my alma mater. Hey, Judd, ready when you are. Oh, great, let's go. Clark and TJ then interviewed the park manager about the previous day's incident. Well, anyway, after I retired from baseball, I signed on here as manager of this park. Anything else I can tell you? Yeah, why the bombing yesterday? Well, there are a bunch of incidences. The bomb was the first major league scare. A couple of weeks ago, all the refrigeration units in the cafeteria blew out. Spoiled about ten, twelve thousand dollars worth of hot dogs and oh ice cream. And the inspector said, that was no accident. Come here, let me show you something else. Not exactly the Mississippi, is it? You know, you can't have flume rides without water. And you can't have water if somebody sabotages your water pumps. Andy, you must have some idea who, who's hassling you. Well, about a month ago, I got a visit from this guy who says he's a representative of a conglomerate that uh, isn't interested in buying the park. And not only that, but he's offering a pretty good penny, too. I said to him, forget it, fella. People who own it aren't interested in selling the park. And he says to me, like he didn't even hear what I said, they'll sell. And two days later, that's when the mischief began. Later, while Clark and TJ are checking out the park as reporters, we're treated to Clark showing jealousy because Lana is on a date with Judd. The four decide to go on the Ferris wheel when Judd tells Lana all about the beautiful matchbook covers that he collects from all over the world. As the wheel goes around, 
An announcement through the park tells everyone it's time for lights out and that everybody's in danger and the ride's shut down. Charles then accosts Andy, the park manager in his office. You again? Do you know all the trouble you caused me? Our last and final offer. Get away from me. Senile old fool. You should have taken the offer. I'm going to call the police. Charles throws Andy over the desk and then leaves. Next, the kids taking a tour of Judd's mansion where Clark hears the squeaky car from the baseball game pull up. Charles emerges from the vehicle and Clark decides to follow. In the back of a garage area, Clark discovers a cassette tape that contains the announcements that played in the park, threatening people. Charles comes in from behind Clark and holds a gun to his head before Judd arrives and pushes him away. Attention! Attention, everybody! You are in danger! Serious danger, pal. Now turn it off! Are you crazy? This man is my guest! Clark, please forgive him. He's my manager. He probably thought you were a burglar or something, didn't you? Huh. A bomb will explode in 30 seconds. An offer was made to buy Boardwalk and Baseball. When it was refused, a bomb was detonated evidently by your man. It appears he was acting on your orders. It would certainly seem so. Is this your equipment? Did I have anything to do with your outrageous acts? No, Judd, no, no. I'm gonna have to call the police, Charles. Oh. Operator, will you get me the police? Will you please go in the house? Clark, will you please join the others? Hello, police. This is Judd Faust. Later, while the concert is going on, Charles arrives again at Andy's office and beats him up. Charles then pours alcohol all over Andy, drinks some of himself. Getting drunk on the job? <laughs> Violating your trust as manager of this glorious park? Causing the death of innocent people. <laughs> oh, how happy your employers are going to be to get rid of this hard luck property. <laughs> Charles takes Andy and deposits him on the tracks of the roller coaster with an oncoming train filled with riders on the way. Clark goes to Andy's office where, according to TJ, he's going to tell Andy that Charles is in jail, but then changes to Superboy and when he sees the office in shambles and Andy not there. Superboy flies to Andy's rescue by landing on the tracks, showing, slowing the train to a stop. Then once he makes sure everyone's okay, he goes after Charles, lifts up the car, and takes him to jail. Then, in a final twist, we see Lana, who is a, hoping for a romantic romp, led away by Judd. There's one last collection I must show you. Only special girls get to see this, Lana. Collect, um, torture instruments? No. I collect the screams of torture victims. Judd? Cut it out. This isn't funny. I don't like this game, Judd. You'll get to like it. Judd?
He ties Lana down on a stretching rack, telling her that with her authentic tortured screams, he'll be able to make the perfect album. Superboy arrives just in time to stop Judd from stretching Lana, and he appears about to punch Judd hard enough to rattle his brains, while Lana pleads with him to stop. Judd said something, like, not as good as the other three. What happened to them? You don't want to know. Yeah, I do. The police found them. They were buried in the basement. He was a collector, all right. A weirdo collector. You know, I don't understand the amusement park thing. Why did he want that so badly? The police psychiatrist, he, he said that he wanted it so badly because he couldn't have it. Hmm? I guess an extreme obsession like that could make a weirdo out of anybody. All right, so this is a pretty interesting episode. Uh, I mean, it's all right. It's not bad. I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen this plot line of somebody wants to buy something, the owner refuses, thugs come and either rough them up or sabotage the the park, you know, in an effort to either drive down the price or get the guy to sell. I've lost count of how many times I've seen this story. This is just another version of that. I mean, it's not bad. It's not good. It's just it kind of is. Judd is kind of thrown in there, and the two storylines kind of converge, and it's just a strange episode. As you got two kind of parallel episodes: the Judd Fa- Faust or Faust, whatever the hell his name is, and the college students thing, and then you got the park stuff over here, and then all of a sudden the two plot lines just kind of crash into each other. I feel like I've described something else like that recently, but not remembering what it was. But we start out with baseball, and there's the mascot holding up the action, which is. Uh, what the mascot does i must say that i'm pretty much with tj on this and the mascot some kind of fat thing uh the mascot rubs up a baseball hands it to the pitcher which typically the mascot does not do i'm not sure if this is college minor league or whatever but generally the baseballs come from the umpire not the mascot so a bomb threat has been announced over the pa and everyone is quietly hanging around you would think that something like that would be taken a little bit more seriously and the umpire looks up to the broadcast booth for guidance, which I was kind of hard on when I watched this episode. But, you know, now that I think about it, you know, and now that I realize who was in the booth with Clark and uh, TJ, it's not just any uh, radio announcer guy. It's Andy, the park manager. And I would assume, and yeah, I guess even for the most part, though, the umpires are in charge, especially if there's no immediate uh, facilities manager hanging around to make a decision. You know, you would think that any uh, sign of a bomb threat, this place would be evacuated right away. But nope, nobody sits there. They just play ball and uh, go about their task. So we're seeing some early stubbornness from Andy, bordering on recklessness. You know, you hear a bomb threat, you take it seriously until you get the okay. I mean, to just continue playing with that being threatened is just irresponsible with people's lives. So Clark eventually finds the bomb in the baseball that the mascot gave uh, the pitcher and... uh, so the mascot is our villain, and then we continue with uh, all kinds of wrong here as a pinch hitter doesn't just come up and say, coach told me to pinch hit for you. No, the coach has, in baseball, the coach has to call the hitter back. Actually, before he even calls the hitter back, again, I don't, the various levels, I deal mostly with high school in my job as, as a sports writer, 
in that kind of situation, the coach takes the lineup card out to the home plate umpire and he has to track the substitutions in, in the pros and in, I guess, some college, perhaps, the change is called up to the official scorer. At least that's how it is in pro ball. College might be uh, the coach going out to the umpire, but in no situation does the pinch hitter run out to the guy who he's hitting for and say, yeah, go have a seat. Coach told me to uh, bat for you. And from the broadcast booth, even though he can't really see his face, somehow TJ can tell that Clark is the hitter. And the PA announcer just announces Clark is number seven. But he would have a roster. He would know that there is no number seven on the roster. Or maybe there is a number seven on the roster. I don't know. Is there like a ball player hanging around in his underwear somewhere because Clark took his uniform? I don't know, but this is just, this is not how substitutions in baseball works. So, but this is not the Man of Baseball podcast. We're going to move on and uh, Clark takes a swing and the baseball explodes in the sky. And then after the explosion, it just cuts right to the next scene. It doesn't show any reaction to anybody in the stand. So I'm kind of wondering, did anybody see this? But apparently they did because uh, TJ is kind of writing Clark about it in the next scene. So now uh, here comes Judd Faust, and uh, everyone is falling over the rock star, especially the ladies. He's going to be getting an honorary master's in music, and uh, he's going to put on a free concert. And he seems kind of uh, reticent about the attention. Maybe he's a little bit of an introvert, or maybe he's crazy, or maybe he's just a weirdo. You know, the introverts are weirdos. You know how that is. So now we learned there have been other issues at this carnival. Apparently someone turned off the refrigeration and spoiled the food and sabotaged the water pumps. And kind of Andy is just kind of laying out the exposition right here. There's kind of a whole big plot dump. A month or so ago, the owner was visited by someone who wanted to buy the park. He chased them, and now there's bad shit going on. So there's a lot going on at this park because it's carnival. We got some carnival games, and Lana is playing Frog Bog, which you, for those of you who don't know, you uh, you get a mallet, and you put a frog on the little uh, device there. You you pound it, and you, your goal is to uh, get the frog in a lily pad uh, that's going around. I actually like that game. Mainly because it's probably the one carnival game I don't suck at. So anyway, uh, Lana's riding the bumper cars with the rock star, and Clark uh, is going to continue to look irritated. So now Judd, uh, I guess being gracious, invites him under the Ferris wheel. Clark says no, but TJ accepts, and... Uh, as they're getting on, Judd finds a matchbook, and I just, watching this scene, I had a feeling that something sinister was about to happen. I'm not sure I necessarily realized, that, you know, because I don't read the summaries before watching the episode, if Judd was involved in it, but I knew something was going to happen. So apparently riding the Ferris wheel with them means two different cars, uh, which is good, because I'm not sure Clark would want to sit there and watch the Lana and Judd face-sucking extravaganza that's going on in the other car. And then the power goes out. Fortunately, uh... There's a backup generator, and you kind of got to wonder how uh, long that's going to last. So now here is uh, Charles. He's waving uh, a check at Andy, and he, when Andy refuses, you know, he Charles reacts the way anybody would react to that kind of situation. He shoves Andy over the desk, which to me is not a very good negotiating tactic. So, like I said, the plot's being done okay here, but it's a tired plot. We see, we see this story constantly. So now we kind of go over to Judd's house to see what he's he's inviting all the kids over. Apparently, Judd is a comic book nerd. You know, this was back in the day when comic book nerds were weirdos. Remember that? You know, Judd's got, a, you know, this huge uh, mansion. I believe uh, Clark described it as opulent. And uh, I don't understand why he necessarily needs an honorary master. He seems to uh, have everything he needs right here. Clark doesn't like him at all, because, mainly because he's hitting on Lana. You know, it's going to be one of those things. Clark is not going to be happy anytime somebody 
pay that kind of attention to Lana. But he doesn't actually do anything himself. He doesn't do anything about it. He's just going to look unhappy whenever Lana goes out with somebody else. So now uh, there's some kind of photography segment here, and TJ is enjoying uh, shooting Lana and some of the other ladies in front of uh, Judd's classic cars, which is something else that he collects. Now Lana gets to uh, play with what I believe is uh, a Nikon camera, and uh, she's having a good time. Clark is not. He looks like he needs a hug. And now a car pulls up, sounding like the uh, Millennium Falcon when the hyperdrive is broken. And it's Charles, who's been threatening Andy this whole episode. So now uh, our plots are about to converge here a little bit. He's meeting with Faust. And Clark has great instincts in this show. I've said that before, and I'm probably going to continue saying it, at least uh, in, in the immediate future. He seems to think something's up, and he finds a workshop with a tape of the bomb threat. And then uh, Clark runs afoul of Charles, who has a gun on Clark. And somehow Clark makes the leap that Judd's manager, Charles, did this on Judd's orders. And Judd comes in, plays off like he, he doesn't know what's going on. And uh, Judd fakes a call to the police to report it. And initially watching this episode, I wondered if Clark knows that Judd didn't actually call the police. I mean, that's something he should be able to tell right off the bat. But it becomes clear later on that he doesn't. So now Charles is back to attacking Andy and he uh, pours some booze on him to make him appear passed out drunk so judd here this highly regarded rock star is really working hard to buy this carnival and the ending justification for it makes no sense at all so now clark goes to see andy to, to tell him that charles is in jail if andy was still in the office he'd tell clark no he's not but clark just sees uh the booze kind of spilling out on the floor i'm not sure why what purpose leaving the alcohol like that is serving uh charles but i guess he took his swig and now he wants to pour to pour it all over the floor, make it look like Andy spilled it all. So, unfortunately, Andy didn't leave a note saying that Charles beat his ass and left him on the roller coaster tracks. He's just going to have to find that out for himself. So, uh, Clark turns into Superboy. Now the roller coaster is going, and uh, here we go. <laughs> we see Charles just kind of laying Andy face down on the tracks. So, Superboy kind of, as he's flying, he turns his head to the right. Presumably, I guess that means he's seeing Charles and his poor Millennium Falcon engine driving off. So Superboy stops the roller coaster car just before it hits Andy. Now, I know that's more dramatic, but wouldn't it have been easier just to scoop Andy up without breaking the coaster's momentum? Because now, how is that roller coaster car going to get into the station? Roller coasters run on momentum. Superboy has stopped said momentum. So does he have to come back now and drag the car into the station? These are the things the writers aren't thinking about. They're not thinking about proper substitution rules in baseball, and they're not thinking about this. Maybe they're not thinking. So Superboy's comment of thinking Charles in jail proved that Clark did not hear that Judd faked the call. I mean, I don't know. Clark should have known that. I mean, his super hearing should have picked up that Judd wasn't really on the phone. But, you know, sometimes you just kind of have to go with it for the sake of the story. So now Superboy punches through the ceiling of it and scares the crap out of Charles. And then he lifts the car, which Judd's reaction to the car are pretty funny. Even if the shot itself looks pretty poor because of the low budget. And now, as if... This episode didn't seem to go on long enough. We still have to resolve the judge situation with Lana. This show is going to continue to uh, follow the trope that just about anyone Lana dates turns out to be a psychopath. Apparently, if she's not dating Clark, she's dating the episode's villain, which is some which is a trope that happens a lot, all the time, to the point where it was kind of refreshing. And uh, at the end of season two of Lois and Clark, even though I didn't care for the character of Dan Scardino, it was nice to see Lois not date a villain, even though that trope does come back as well. Anyway, this 
We'll, we'll, we'll get to all that nonsense from Lois and Clark later. So, Judd collects the screams of torture victims. You know, I remember thinking to myself when I'm watching this episode and Judd is leading Lana to see a special collection. I'm thinking, oh my god, he's got heads on a desk. Well, nope, it's not severed heads. But Lana is scared of not liking this game. I don't think uh, I would either. So, here we go. He's collecting the scream, the scream of torture victims. In about 30 years, Judd will definitely run afoul of the hashtag uh, MeToo movement. This goes far beyond being a crappy boyfriend. So Superboy now shows up as Judd has uh, got Lana tied to the stretching uh, rack, and uh, he shows up just in time to uh, keep Lana from becoming uh, five inches taller. Superboy is pissed. He grabs Judd. Looks like he's going to put his fist right through his face. But Lana talks him down. So now, apparently, we learn in the ending that Judd has killed three people, two after all that. Judd's justification for wanting the amusement park is because he couldn't have it. I mean, definitely a spoiled rich brat stuff. So yeah, Judd is definitely a little bit more uh, than a little bit out to lunch. You know, an episode that was kind of light and breezy to start took a very dark turn at the end there with that whole torture chamber stuff. So the whole time you think that this episode is about, a, you know, a rich boy wanted to buy an amusement park. You turn out it's about psychosis and being a spoiled brat. Oh, I mean, so this season gets a bad rap, but I'm enjoying it so far, despite the obvious cheapness and the production values. But stories are okay; they're passable. The acting is not great, but it's passable. This episode surprised me—the dark turn it took at the end, but you know, not bad at all. It kind of rescues it a little bit from the tired uh, buying the amusement park trope. So next time, back to animation. Back to Ruby Spears with the Superman episodes, Bone Chill and The Beast Beneath These Streets, and the Superman Family Album Stories, The Driver's License, and The First Date. If you want to leave feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. And uh, if you don't mind, I want you to leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts. That'll help others find the show as well. So, until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright, their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.